Well, anyway, okay, we should start recording here because I know um, I'm hungry and yeah. Marina's hungry and we're very, we're all hungry. Let's talk about a mouse. Let's talk, let's talk about a mouse. Are your school days out of sight when you took English, art, and math? What's your favorite Fahrenheit? How sour are the grapes of wrath? Do you need a challenger for discussing Salinger? Do you love the written word? What happened to the mockingbird? Our show is just beginning, so find a place to sit. These questions will be on the test. It's time for Sophomore Lit. Welcome back to Sophomore Lit, where we reread your 10th grade reading list. Uh, I'm your host, John McCoy, and with me is returning co-host, Phil Gonzalez. Hi, John. Hey, I, we were just talking. It's been, it's been a while. Phil and I used to have a podcast together, and now I feel like it's that beginning of... Um, Veronica Mars. A long time ago, we used to be friends. <laughs> well, we're 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 re-entering a, a, our our friendship in a comfortable way because yeah. you and I have discussed mice before. Yes, we have. We've discussed mice before, and uh, and I'm sure we will discuss mice on many occasions in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't expecting the second half of that sentence. <laughs> well, I, as I was saying before the podcast started, I'm actually dealing with a mouse problem in my house right now. So if I'm a little less sympathetic to the um, hero of our book, I, you'll understand why. And as someone who himself personally dealt with quite the mouse infestation in our house, a mouse infestation so bad that we had to throw away our kitchen stove. Uh, oh, I my God. I completely, yeah, the mouse decided to dwell in the kitchen stove and then urinate all over the inside of the kitchen stove. So every time you turned it on, the house would smell like mouse urine. And we called someone and they were like, yeah, you just got to throw that thing away. <laughs> it was the worst. You know, mice are adorable until you actually see one in real right. life. They're adorable until you see one in real life or they come out of your spouse, apparently, is a uh, is the, the entire premise of today's of this book. <laughs> Right. So, yes, this time we are doing E.B. White's uh, 1945 book, uh, Stuart Little, which I believe is the first of his children's books. Yeah, his first children's book. Right. Uh, and, you know, of course, uh, Charlotte's Web would be the obvious choice for this podcast, but we never do the obvious thing here. <laughs> this book is so... When did you first read Stuart Little? Well, I, I will. I will admit something. When I was a little kid, my brother, Rob loved this book and he made me read it uh, and I had previously read um, Charlotte's Web and I just could not for the life of me get into this book but I told Rob that I had read it so Rob <laughs> I apologize for that I did read it eventually later on down the line I read it when I was a teenager and I was like oh what was the deal with that Stuart Little book and I think it it landed for me then because it is such a strange book and it's such a oddly moody book mm -hmm. um that that really fit in my uh teen angst years it makes sense for it to make sense to a teenager because it's literally about a guy who doesn't know how to go out on a date like <laughs> the whole plot of this book is Stuart's a bad first date and then it ends <laughs> Are you are you are you extrapolating from the that that one chapter and applying it to the rest of the book or Yes, the whole book builds up to the fact that Stuart <laughs> is that guy who things don't work out on a date and he throws a fit in front of the girl and she has to like comfort him. I think this is a book that is a 
It starts out about one thing and ends up about another thing. And in the end, it's about how you can never actually return to the past. Mm-hmm. It's about, it's, it, it feels very dreamlike to me. It feels like, I, I guess I have a lot of dreams in which I'm looking for something and I never find it. You know, so so this I guess it will psychologize me in this in this podcast. So this book really hits hard. Like the end of this book, where everyone everyone like throws up their hands and says, "What the hell was that book about?" Yeah. The end of this book makes sense to me in a way that I don't think it makes sense to most people. It's an interesting book because it's clearly I, I was reading it and I was like, "Was this a series of stories he told his children and then he put them all together in a book and that's the way the book?" And then I read about it and I was like, "Oh yeah, it is exactly like." Guy made up a bunch of stories about a mouse for his kids, and a friend of his was like, you should really publish this as a book, which in some version of this story would result in Stuart Little being basically like the Paddington Bear of America. Like, there could have been 15 Stuart Little books just with the more and more adventures of the – because it's very episodic. It's very just like, and then the next thing happens, and then the next thing happens, and – it, but the fact that he never followed up on this just totally surprises me because if nothing else, the ending is more open for a sequel than Stuart Little the movie. <laughs> well, I think your uh, comparison to Paddington is, is very apt because in addition, the, this book starts out as a series of extremely dry mm-hmm. quips about New York life that no kid is going to understand. Um, yeah. or, or, or care about in the same way that um, the Paddington books are about post-war Britain and about sort of middle-class post-war Brits getting on in a new jet set world where they're not quite sure where the place of Britain is in America is in the world anymore. Um, this is about, um, this is about New York sophisticates just at the, at the moment that New York was becoming uh, a sophisticated place, you know, because um, White, of course, is known for being uh, one of the major writers for The New Yorker, but The New Yorker wasn't even a venue uh, until when? When did when New Yorker start? Like 20-something, 20... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know off the top of my head when the New Yorker started. <laughs> what you aren't a you aren't a Harold Ross fan? You don't know uh, the New Yorker started nineteen twenty five. Yep. Yes. So, um, so I guess it's twenty years later, but uh, but but White was there for the beginning of the New Yorker. Yeah, and a humorist, right? Like, not a children's writer necessarily. I don't know what you could call White. He has one of these crazy journalist careers that I don't think, I can't imagine how they ever existed, where someone just decides they're going to be a journalist and they move from venue to venue, from newspaper to magazine. They're, he wrote for places all over the country. Um, and, if, and the other thing that White is known for, aside from his children's books, of course, is being the white half of, uh, of Strunk and White. Of, of the of the elements of style and so he he basically made a career out of being very pedantic about uh what good writing is and you read this book and i'm struck by the elegance of of each individual sentence even as what's happening makes no sense right it makes no sense uh i mean right off the bat Everything we've said about the book so far, which hasn't honestly been much, has been wrong, simply because Stuart Little, contrary to most people's preconceived notions, is not a mouse. 
Right. He is a boy who looks like a mouse. And they make that very clear in the book. Uh, he he has a mouse's tail, a mouse's whiskers, and the pleasant, shy manner of a mouse. And my favorite line in the whole book, which is, before he was many days old, he was not only looking like a mouse, but acting like one, too, wearing a gray hat and carrying a small cane. Like, the fact that <laughs> that's the indication that he's behaving like a mouse is, that was my first indication that, oh, there's a very strong, his tongue is firmly in cheek during much of this book. It's lines like that that... I think are really left over from this being a series of stories told to kids because Mm -hmm. one of the things you do to amuse your kids uh, when they're young is you tell them something they know to be untrue. Yeah. And then they can loudly object to what you've just said about that's not right. You mentioned that line. My favorite line comes the page later when uh, there's the line that says, the doctor was delighted with Stuart and said that it was very unusual for an American family to have a mouse. Because she had a mouse. <laughs> like a, a, a plot development, it's the first plot development is that they have a mouse and a plot development so odd that when they made a movie of this, they were just like, they just adopt a mouse. Like we can't, we're just going to have them go to an adoption, an orphanage and adopt a mouse because that makes more sense than how this book began. It is a very strange thing, and it also reminds me of this. Also reminds me of a dream because um, my, one of my favorite cartoonists, uh, the uh, alternative uh, Canadian cartoonist Julie Desay, uh had a recurring dream in which she gave birth to a cat, and a lot of those dreams in the in those dreams she describes like giving birth to a cat that's smaller than a thimble or something like that. And there's this kind of this weird sort of genteel body horror here that's going on yeah. here about this. It's, it seems wrong. It seems very, very wrong from the beginning. It's also very, uh, it's very just Tom Thumb. Like this is, this is a retelling in some ways of just one of like the old Tom Thumb tales from, I don't know, like the 16th century. Uh, like it's because it, it's that basic thing, like half the fun in the beginning of this book is what can Stuart Little do being so tiny? Well, he can go down the drain. Well, he has to f- work the inside of a piano. Well, he gets wrapped up in a in a in a blind, just like Tom the cat. Like it's it's what happens to a tiny person. It's it's very much the borrowers of the littles. Um uh, and then, of course, he has a life or death like relationship with the family cat because it's just it's that until it isn't until it becomes a whole other story halfway through these these opening sequences where, as you say, the whole point is to talk about the ridiculous thing that Stuart Little has to do being so small. It reminds me a lot of the original web series of. Marcel the Shell. Oh yeah, where uh, where all the jokes that Jenny Slate just says are things like, "Guess what I do for an adventure? I hang glide on a Dorito." You know, yeah. Guess what I I drink a drop of water. You know, it's like this this kind of delight in in the miniature, and there is this absolute delight in the miniature that happens in these uh, opening uh, lines. Except when Stuart almost dies from getting wrapped up in a in a window blind and everyone thinks he's he's gone down a mouse hole it's 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 very uh diverting little storyline and then it just it's done when it's done this is uh where we get introduced to the family cat what's the family cat's name again snowbell snowbell and snowbell belongs to that 
there's there's this kind of a cat that I think appears in a lot of stories that I read when I was growing up that were written in the 50s and 60s, where there's always a cat who is a terrible creature mm-hmm. who exists not just to antagonize the um, the main characters, but to be an active threat to the main characters. I mean, I, th- I think about there was a cat like that in The Rescuers by Marjorie Shepard. I mean, I guess the answer is I read a lot of books that had mice. mice for yes. <laughs> but but there, there is this, there's this um, tradition of these literary cats that are not good. They, they're, they're not, I was going to say they're not good people, but of course they're not people, they're cats. But Yeah, there's a push and pull always with those characters, which is as an anthropomorphized feline, it has human intelligence. So the, so the fallback is always, this is my nature. My nature is that I kill mice. Uh, even if the cat is somewhat sympathetic, the cat is still like, I am a cat, so I have to kill mice. And even Snowbell is like, the only reason I do not kill you is because you are you are my superior in the hierarchy of this family. But it's totally okay if I let my friends kill you. <laughs> is Snowbell's approach? Uh, Snowbell, voiced by Nathan Lane in the movie series. By the way. <laughs> uh, if anyone's only familiar with the movies. This ain't it, by the way. This is uh, this is a very different animal than the children's films. Yeah, we should we should talk about the movie towards the end because, boy, you know, talk about a film that in no way honors the source material. I mean, that may be a good thing or a bad thing depending on on who you are. It is there is nothing similar about this uh, book to the, the movie. The sequel to the movie, the Stuart Little 2 actually is the one that introduces Margalo as a character, brings her in and actually feels, in part at least, a little bit more like the book, just because it's about him trying to find Margalo. But uh, that's because she's in deep with like a, the mob and there's like a hawk that's her boss and it's it gets complicated. But uh... <laughs> I was I was not watching kids movies at that time. I, I was I was I had a child who uh, who uh, was of that age, and so I saw Stuart and Stuart Little, Stuart Little and Stuart Little two quite a few times. Do we want to go through this chronologically? Is there well, other it's, scenes? It's very short. This is a very short book. Uh, you can read it in one sitting, uh, as long as you're not I don't know like John like pondering heartbreakedly over every single page as long as it's not throwing you too much into the sense of despair that a child feels when suddenly confronted with the inevitability of time and the fact that that life only moves forward (laughs) if you're just reading it for the plot it's a very short book and uh and it is very just it's very episodic there's like your introduction little adventures then there's like the boat race Stuart gets a car that can turn invisible, but that only turns invisible once, and then we don't come back to that. (laughs) (laughs) I had totally forgotten the car turns invisible, by the way. The book threatens to become naturalistic, and then it becomes absurd again. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this this threatened naturalism where Stuart involves himself with living in a world of clothespin beds and mouse holes. But then when he goes to... uh, when he goes to Central Park and then mm-hmm. he goes to the boating pond, which is still there at Central Park, and there still are people who do 
um, who, who do model boats out there. Although I don't know whether they there still would be if it weren't for this book. I, I wonder if that book, this book yeah, is... how much of it fed one into the other? Right, right. Um, then it becomes absurd again. You know, the the the, the story of of Stuart helming this boat on the high seas because if you've ever been to that boating pond, it is literally like three inches, four inches deep mm-hmm. and across a cement bottom. It's not a, it's not a, like a little lake. It's like a little, it's more like a skating rink almost. Yeah. Uh, and the, the boating sequence goes on for a while because he's asked, he asks to captain the boat. That's not his boat. It's another guy's boat. And the guy's like, you know what? My boat is always beat by this other boat. But I bet if a mouse was piloting it, it would win. <laughs> and he's a Stuart Little's like, sign me up. And so he does, and it's a long sequence. It involves a cop falling in the water, and he wins. If if you if you find it funny at all, you find it funny because of the droll um, delivery of Edwardian or Victorian sounding nautical lines about mm-hmm. you know the about the honor at stake in winning this race about how best to pilot a ship and how best to deal with um, with, with various uh, hazards at sea. So if you're, the, if you're a kid who grew up, I don't know, listening to Pirates of Penzance, maybe <laughs> it will abuse you, but um, it doesn't really seem to be actually made for children. Oh, no, this is definitely a part where E.B. White was like, I love boats, or I know a lot about them, at least. And I'm going <laughs> to, like, put my boat knowledge right there on the paper, uh, because I'm going to I'm going to be completely honest with you. My mind wandered a bit during this <laughs> during this sequence. I was just like, OK, you're still on the boat. It's not that interesting. I was listening to the uh, the Julie Harris uh, uh, audio book that uh, is very well done. But yeah, I was just like, okay, he's on the, he's still he just doing the boat thing, and it's a rough sea. Uh, so uh, yeah, but it's a central part of the story, and it's one of the moments that really stand, like that that you think of when you think of Stuart Little, is him in this him in this model sailing vessel. Well, it's central in that it happens in the middle of the book, yeah, and it's yeah. the longest, it's the longest thing that happens in the book, but like. Like almost everything else in this book, it passes and then it's never thought of again. Mm-hmm. I think the reason I, I react so strongly to Margolo is that's the point in the book where a through line starts to emerge. Yeah. And um, and even if it's a through line that is White saying, remember Margolo from three chapters ago? You know, you're you're never you're never going to see that again. I love reading uh, things that are a bit of a mess. You know, this is mm-hmm. definitely a bit of a mess. This is definitely, as you say, it was a bunch of uh, stories he told, stitched together, but not even stitched together. You know, taped with post-it tape together, yeah. the flimsiest of 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 ways. Did, so I'm going to ask: Did you used to make up stories for your? Like as a as a parent, did you used to sit and just make up stories? Yes, I did. I, mm-hmm. I and I and, and they and I, I I remember there was a um 
there was a story about a bunny that went on for many, many, many months. Yeah. And then I stopped, you know, I forgot, I, I stopped one night. And then about a year later, my kid said, well, tell me what happened to the bunny. And I had completely forgotten everything yeah. that had happened. And I felt, I felt the loss of this story. I felt like that had gone from me and I would never recover it. You know, the kid wanted me to tell more and prompted me with like bits of, of, of like, well, don't you remember when he met the fox? Don't you remember when this thing happened? And I'm like, uh, sure. Why, why? Did you tell stories to your kids? Well, what's amazing is, and I'm, I'm wondering if this is just a thing, I could have just exactly said what you said, except it was a unicorn instead of a bunny. But with my older child, yeah, there was this period of time when I was telling her this story, this ongoing tale about this unicorn. I remember it went into space and there was like a giant ship in space. And I don't remember much about it, but it was one of those things where I tell the story we were driving somewhere before bed. Like it was just this this serial narrative. And then I stopped for some reason. And one day, like a year later, she was like, we never finished the story of the unicorn. I never found out what happened with X, Y, or Z that I had no memory of. And what this, what the Margalow plotline reminds me of is that a thread that you mention, you start building up when you're making it up, but then you move on to other things because you're telling the story every night to your kids. And then every once in a while, your kid will be like, what about this? And you're like, oh, right, right, right. Yeah, he's still looking for Margalo. Don't worry. Uh, but there's, but he's now he's in the town. Now he's a teacher. And you never, because you're not writing a book and you don't have an editor, you just, you just keep on going until your kid's too old for you to tell stories to anymore. And that's kind of what this book feels like. It's, it ends the night the kid asks to watch TV instead, or the night the kid <laughs> is like, oh, I want to play a video game, or I'm going to read my own book tonight. And you just never get back to the story. I think that's what I feel reading this book is not so much the plot or the or the or the through line as that sense of just never picking the story back up. And that kind of that feeling you mentioned of loss of just like, oh, that's just done then, I guess. There's never gonna be the rest of Stuart Little. <laughs> it's very funny, particularly considering um the book that White is best known for, uh, Charlotte's Web, has a very carefully thought out shape and a shape that is very mm. carefully modulated to the turn of seasons. So right. there's this, there's a way that this all makes sense. Although even with even with um, Charlotte's Web, when you read it again, I'm I'm always interested in those points where. White sort of goes off the rails. You know, uh -huh. there's a point in Charlotte's Web where um, where Fern's mother goes to a psychiatrist thinking that yeah. Fern has gone nuts uh -huh. because she comes back talking about animals talking to each other. And it becomes, uh, you know, it becomes this, the doctor saying to the, the very Riley to the mom, you know, I can't help it that you have no uh, imagination or wonder <laughs> right. in the world, but don't destroy it in your kid. Um, but, but again, it's a, it's one of those chapters that I, I never remembered from childhood, but I, I remember very strongly from every time I rewrote read that book as an adult, it's really, uh, thrown in there for the, for the adults again. 
Well, what's wild is that is that E.B. White wrote Charlotte Webb, and of course, that's the book that I'm very familiar with. I read it several times, and I read a book. I think I read the annotated edition of it because I remember reading a lot about how how White was very particular when it came to the editing of the book and the writing of the book that Charlotte Webb. Even though the characters were talking and they were anthropomorphized, he didn't want them to behave in any way that an actual animal wouldn't behave. He was like, that's the point of the book. It's supposed to be about real life. It's about a real farm and their animals. So the animals, he hated the cartoon because the animals sang and danced. He's like, that doesn't happen on a farm. So it's shocking to me that his first book is about a mouse that drives an invisible car and then his only other children's book is about a swan that learns to play the trumpet, that learns to play jazz trumpet. Like he wrote these two books on either side of this very naturalistic tale that are just about like animals doing things that animals would never do and couldn't conceive of. And then in the middle, he was like, this is my my this is my it's got to be real. Like, I don't care. if The only thing that's weird is that the spider can write. That's it. Well, as you will recall. Stuart is not a mouse. He's not a mouse. But the swan is definitely a swan in Trumpet of the Swan. And it does learn to play the jazz trumpet. I mean, when you think about it, part of what that whole Stuart is not a mouse thing is, is it, it gets the kids to argue with you about what actually makes a mouse. If, yeah. If, if Stuart is the size of a mouse, if he's covered with fur, if he has a tail and ears, then isn't he actually a mouse? How, how is he still a human? White says that the things about him that are mouse-like are his uh, hat and his cane. Yeah. <laughs> Which then he you never see him really with <laughs> afterwards. Well, well <laughs> Stuart, Stuart is quite the cosplayer because when he goes down on the boats, he's like wearing his little sailor suit that he's, somehow he's got. You know, I, you know a lot of books uh, that I read, again, that, that took place in the... Uh, 40s or 50s, kids seem to have either a sailor suit mm-hmm. or a cowboy suit. Yes. And 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 they would say at the beginning of the chapter, so-and-so was wearing their sailor suit that day. Right. And when I was a kid, I, I would think like, somebody forgot to give me, me my sailor suit. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you and I, I mean, any listener who never listened to Click It Cast knows that, you know, we, we read many a book that is that takes place in that vague era of, of American history where boys all had coonskin caps and slingshots. And we're also familiar with books that are very episodic and don't really fit together as a as a story a la Henry Huggins earlier books. Um so, you know, I have sympathy for this book. I, 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 And once the plot, as much as it is, kicks in, things get more a little more fraught. They get a little more emotional. Uh, Stuart befriends a bird named Margalot, who uh, eventually runs away because there's a conspiracy with the neighborhood cats to kill and eat her. <laughs> Stuart ends up getting thrown in the trash and has to be rescued by the bird. It's, it's a whole other thing. But she... She leaves pretty early on, and the rest of the book is Stuart setting out to find his friend Margalow, who, spoiler alert, he never finds. When he sees Margalow the first time, he's struck by how beautiful she is and how mm-hmm. and 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 she does save his life, and she seems so wonderful and admirable and for the the child, the child, having the story told to them or, or or reading it, it would seem like 
finally Stuart has a peer, a friend mm-hmm. who will be uh, a protector, a confidant, who who makes it makes sense for Stuart to have this because Stuart really doesn't relate to his family very well, being the size of a mouse and looking just like a mouse. He needs uh, someone closer to his own experiences. But as you say, then he then Margalo just takes off. Yes, Margalo takes off because she catches wind of the fact that the that Snowball is egging on the local cat to eat her. Yeah, and it's it's quite remarkable that later in the book, when when you talk about how Stuart is a bad. Um, is a bad First date because yeah. he because because he he meets later in the book a a young woman who is exactly his size and you think again as a reader you would think as a ch- as a child oh thank God here is someone Stuart can be with you know right. even if you're a child and you don't have any sense of romantic love or any idea that these people are going to end up making a family together or being partners together or whatever you think. Here is someone Stuart's size, and and how unlikely is that? How yeah. how there's no one else in the world like this. They they have to end up together, and it fails because Stuart is basically, um, you know, he's he's basically has a, has a meltdown yeah. of, about about things not going the way he imagined they would. You know, he plans out what the state is going to look like, and he can't roll with the punches when. It doesn't happen the way he thinks it's going to happen. And she's being a great sport. Like he gets a he gets a canoe, but it's a fake canoe, so it's water law. It falls apart, and he he tries to fix it, and then it disappears. And the whole time she's like, "It's okay, it's okay. We can just chill out here." And he's like, "No, we're supposed to go on the water." And he keeps like throwing little tantrums, and she, you can tell she's getting really uncomfortable in that way where it's like, "It's your, it's a, it's a blind date with some guy," and all of a sudden he's crying, and you're like, "Oh no, uh, I don't want this guy to freak out, so I'm just gonna be really nice to him." And in any other children's book, the date would have been a bummer, but she would have been like, let's give it another shot. But instead, she's like, well, you you take care now. I'll call you or something. And then he's like, I'm le- I'm just going to leave town. And he just leaves and he just goes off. Well, I mean, I have to say, you know, God bless Thurber for doing this because there are so many stories in which the female characters exist to soothe the yeah. male characters' egos to soothe their hurt. Stuart is being a little jerk here, and Harriet decides, you know what, uh, you know, yeah. I, I don't need to, I don't need to take care of 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 a mouse. Yeah, you know, I, I can I can go off and find my own life. <laughs> um, but even as a as a possible substitute for Margolo, who who shows up here, who in some ways seems like a more uh, likely partner for Stuart, mm-hmm. you know, when you, when she's first introduced, that's denied to the to the reader. And that's a, such a strange thing to do to um as particularly to children, to to introduce something that you think you know what the shape is going to be. You think you have an idea of what would be right to happen and just deny it. Right. And it 
And it would make sense to me if there were further adventures of Stuart Little where he continued to meet people his size and things just weren't quite right. You know, like as he's pursuing Margalow, he keeps almost finding a substitute for like, I can see where this would go. If I was an editor, I'd be like, all right, next, where's our next Stuart Little? Where's Stuart in the Bahamas or whatever? And, and T.H. <laughs> and E.B. White. Did I, I keep saying T.H. White. It's E.B. White. Uh, T.H. White wrote about kings, but he also wrote about people who were animals. So, you know, it's okay. You called him Thurber just a minute ago. So Thurber. we're all oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, listen, it was a very specific moment in American letters and (laughs) a lot was going on. A lot of people who maybe shouldn't have been around kids were writing kids books. That's all we're saying. (laughs) And and he and Evie White collaborated on a book together. So but not a kid's book. (laughs) Right. Well, Thurber also wrote kids' books, and, yeah. and some of those are some of my favorite books in the world, actually. Yeah, I mean, these are. This was a period of time where very, very smart people were writing very, very smart books, and a lot of them for kids. And uh, I think that there's that there's this. You can't put this book into a into a. a you can't pigeonhole this book because it is so weird. Um, he, like I said, he goes to visit his, when he's going to go look for Margolo, he goes to visit his dentist friend. And his dentist friend is like, you know, I invented a, a car that can be driven by a small person. Uh, it, it's powered by gasoline. You can take my car to go look for Margolo. Also, if you push this button, it'll turn invisible. And Stuart's all this button and he pushes it and the car turns invisible and it goes crazy and it's driving all over the place, but they can't find it because it's invisible. So they have to like wait for the car to like show itself and they turn it back visible. And the dentist is like, oh, maybe you shouldn't turn the car invisible anymore. And Stuart's like, yeah, you're probably right. And then that's like, and I can see where E.B. White was telling the story to his children. And if you're telling this story to a child, that's hilarious. Like, that's a very funny thing to do. But when you're reading a novel, you expect this to have some sort of payoff. Like, if Aunt, if Chekhov were writing this story, the, the mouse would definitely use the invisible car in the end. It strikes me as exactly the sort of thing that as a child... I would be very frustrated with is the idea that this guy <laughs> would make an invisible car because it would just a- a- ask all it would pose all sorts of questions for me. And I right. remember when we read, um, you know, the mouse and the motorcycle. That was the thing that always rubbed me wrong about that book was <laughs> that uh, Ralph made the motorcycle go just by making a, a an engine noise going and then yeah. it go, and that struck me as absurd. It didn't strike me as absurd that there was an anthropomorphic talking mouse. You're right. That's your given. That seemed reasonable to me. It upset you that that happened. And it upset one of our listeners, I remember, that you questioned that. <laughs> I remember we got a very, very upset like comment on, on that episode about, about you not just rolling with that. So, uh, so listeners, please... Just know that we, we things stick in our craw. And one of those is the invisible car. And so, yeah, he heads off, I guess, to Connecticut um, to find to find Margolo. And that's when he becomes a substitute teacher. Well, you know, as a, as a New Englander myself, I find it interesting, this motion from the big city to uh, the country and to New England. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know that that was also a uh, dichotomy that existed in uh, the cricket in Times Square, where Chester oh, Cricket yeah. comes from Connecticut. I think that the you know before I ever had any sense of what New England was, it, it existed as the magical country that New Yorkers went to. Yeah, it's also very much. Uh, I mean, it's a different coast, but it's very much Hitchcock's The Birds. Uh, <laughs> you start in the city and you end up in a small a small town, um, and with you know, with threatened by small things. Uh, in The Birds, they're threatened by the birds, and in Stuart Little, he's threatened by a fifteen year old girl. So you know. <laughs> It's, you know, there's there's uh, serendipity there, I guess. Um, but yeah, he gets a job as a substitute teacher. And it's a whole chapter about Stuart being very good at teaching techniques, like him leading this class, like in a less, like using like unconventional teaching techniques to get the class like on board with learning. And then that, then it's done. Like he's just a good teacher and then that's it. He, he has a command of keeping the kids' attention. Yeah. He's not necessarily good at, at, at teaching the curricula. No, he's a mouth. The children say he needs to teach them spelling. He says, I strongly urge every one of you to buy a Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, which is a, a practical thing to say. And when they say, what's next? And they say, writing. And he says, don't you children know how to write yet? They say, yes. He goes, great. On to the next thing. Yep. Stuart in the chapter is a different character than he is in the rest of the book. Um, it's it's clearly White having this idea in his head for a pretty funny, like, classroom routine. Like, it's something you could see done on, like, stage. Like, and now the comedy troupe will do, the now the classroom, and you, the kids all yell out things, and the teacher is absurd and making, like, jokes. It's very, like, the Wogglebug from uh, the Oz books. Like, this person who thinks he's a super smart teacher, but is actually just saying nonsense to the kids. It strikes me as um, like a Groucho Marx routine. Yeah, in yeah, which yeah. There, he's sort of undercutting propriety. He's making fun of people putting on airs. He's also making fun of authority. It, you know, he's he's left town. He's looking for Margot, but somehow he's also packed in his in his uh, provisions. He's packed a pepper and salt jacket, old striped trousers, a Windsor's tie, and spectacles. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I don't know why he, he, he brought those along, other than he assumed he would have to be uh, doing some substitute teaching on the way. Yeah. He does teach them about law. He teaches them about right and wrong. They make their own laws. They have to learn about uh, justice and fairness and... It's just why you could read this chapter as its own separate little short story and it would be fine. Because, uh, yeah, because it ends, everyone says goodbye, and then he's just on to his next little adventure. And that's when he finds out about uh, about the girl, more or less. Whether or not he teaches the kids anything, as you say, he is absolutely in control of the situation. He He is driving everything. He is full of confidence, whether it's misplaced confidence or not, he's completely, uh, he, he, he runs this chapter. And it's this next chapter right after that, that he has this insane breakdown over mm -hmm. the fact that nothing goes the way he wants it to. And he's unable to even see what a um, cad he's being to this, this young woman and how uh, boorish he is. Yeah, he also writes her a very long courtship letter. 
uh, how old is Stuart supposed to be? <laughs> like, does he age like a mouse? And I'm not asking this in like the sense of like, like how do Smurfs reproduce? I'm asking this like in a legitimate like. I wonder how old E.B. White thinks Stuart is. Like, what, is he supposed to represent a teenager or a like clearly not a child? Like, he's clearly supposed to be of dating age at least, like mentally. Yes, because it doesn't say like 15 years later, Stuart was like the, his brother is still a little like a little kid. Oh, yeah. He has a brother, by the way, who dislikes him again. His his writing is so grand eloquent <laughs> yeah. and such a a parody of a certain kind of, of writing. Um, I, I don't I don't think age makes any sense here because he, even in 1945 this language is florid and victorian and 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 would read as strange to anybody yeah yeah it it reminds me a lot i mean now that i've said it out loud it reminds me a lot of not thematically but some of L. Frank Baum's Oz books, which are also very American stories about a very American type of like fantasy and like satire, uh, in a way that you know the, the in a way that uh, that the uh, the Paddington stories and any European children's books from aroundish this era don't like they, they're they have a much different a different kind of wit than this does. But there's something about Something about this book about the expanse of America, the concept of hitting the open road, uh, uh, how this country is just sort of like a place where you can just drive forever and meet all kinds of different people, that it's just – it's a quintessentially American children's story. And, uh, you know, like even down to like the whole like idea of, you know, going out on a date with your best girl at the age of 15 – uh, sort of playing into those, you know, the notion of that, playing around with even the concept of like teenagers in 1945. Uh, I don't know. There's, there is something that's very, it's just, I think maybe that was one of the things that hit me as weird is that it's just, it's very much a book set in its era. No, I think, I think you're onto something also about the Americanism. I, I guess the kind of writing I would associate this with in, in Britain would be the Pooh books, mm. it would be, which were very droll, very dry humor. But there the humor is based upon a, a gentle lyricism. It, it, it's, it's continuing the lyrical love of, of country from Wind in the Willows and the idea of animals seeking to express themselves and kind of coming up short, you know, yeah. Pooh is constantly trying to write poetry. Piglet is constantly trying to find a way to assert himself in, in, the, in the world. Um, those concerns are not the concerns of Stuart Little. Stuart Little, as you say, is, a, is a, the concerns are about um, industry and e exploration and uh, the open road and individualism and what, what all that means. Yeah. Yeah, and like where Paddington is trying to constantly just sort of like, like be a member of this family, Stuart like <laughs> openly rejects his family and is seeking like a partner, is seeking 
the person who makes him feel comfortable. Like there's there's a flip of the like the domestic situation is completely opposite of this. And I think Paddington is interesting because it, it too is about like an animal that is living with a with a middle class family. And and in this case you see that like that life is just not right for Stuart and he has to head out and sort of forge his own path, which is a very American thing. Like the, the ideal of like the individual uh rejecting tradition and and moving forward. Like you're constantly having to like just move forward over to the next horizon. Uh which I guess is literally what it says at the end of the book. <laughs> well Paddington is also about the collapse of empire. Yeah. The, the family comes to Paddington in a railway station, which is yeah. the symbol of Victorian empire. And, he, and, the, and Paddington comes from Peru, which was not a British colony, but which is a colonial uh, state. And it's sort of like the world is, is closing in. It's coming, it's coming back to London and it's becoming smaller. You know, Paddington is ostensibly a world traveler, but now he's living with uh, this middle-class family in a little middle-class house, you know, doing middle-class things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, this is, this is, uh, Stuart Little is about uh, a dissolution in the end of, of, mm-hmm. of he, he lets go of the family. He lets go of the, the various uh, jobs he, he's taken on. He lets go of this possible romance. And in the end, he he wanders off the page. It, it, the the all he has is a direction, and yeah. he's. They say you know north. Any, the guy says to him, anyone you know. He talks to a local who's giving him sort of old timey New Englander advice, but he says anyone who goes north can't be making a a mistake in my estimation, and that's where we 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 leave him. Is is, and and it reminds me. Of the, the boat one that was oh uh, Nantucket by... uh, uh Pym uh Pym, Arthur right. Gordon Pym Arthur Gordon Pym because we talked about this with uh, the um... at the Mountains of Madness yeah that's another book that ends with the characters sort of disintegrating into the end of the page um, that's such a strange thing to do with your character. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not a typical <laughs> ending. I mean, didn't did Poe? Finish? I don't think he finished. Did he finish Pim? Yeah, he finished Pim. People don't know. Yeah. People, people, the thing is, there, there is the story that people say that Pim was an unfinished story, but that doesn't make any sense to me because, because Poe wrote an epilogue to the, the story. If he, he had plenty of time to write an ending if he wanted to write an ending. It's not like, it's not like he was hit by a car while he was <laughs> right. writing that last page. Yeah. Yeah, well, Evie White was also accused of not finishing this story. Uh, <laughs> even the people who encouraged him to write it were like, mm, you shouldn't publish this. And uh, it didn't go over that well with every critic when it first came out. It kind of took a while for it to become like an American classic. Right, but it's it's what you were saying earlier um, about smart people writing children's books at this time. There wasn't really a good model for writing children's yeah. book. You know what there were were there were like Victorian stories like Little Lord Flauntroy. There was things like the um, you know the Secret Garden. Then you had you had E. B. White writing this. You had T. H. White writing the Sword of the Stone, which was for children, 
And that is a very strange book that it's hard to say why that would be f- interesting to children. Um, now, you froze for a second. Did you mention the water babies? Oh, I did not mention the water babies. Okay. Yeah. I always think of, for some reason, when I think of children's literature, I always think of the water babies because I never read it, but it made me furious as a child because it seemed like a parody of a children's book. Like, though, that's what you think kids want to read about is water babies. Uh, yeah. You know, the thing about water babies, I've never read that either, but there was a terrible, um, musical animated movie of the water babies that ran on HBO (laughs) in the late eighties. And, uh, my little brother, Dan, he will deny this, but he watched that (laughs) film every time he came on HBO. And if you grew up in the eighties and you knew, know what HBO used to be like, (laughs) it was basically, they would have five shows that they would show over and over and over again for a month. And then, they would cycle through another five shows. And then in two months' time, they would go back to the first five shows. Yeah. And so Water Babies was one of those things. And um, to this day, uh, you know, I, 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 I bug him about it. He, he denies it. But he, he, he watched that show. And, and it, had a, it had a musical number in it called High Cockalorum. And if you, want to, <laughs> if you want to know what this is about, you know, go on to YouTube and look up Water Babies High Cockalorum. Well, all I know is that the Water Babies just always seemed like something that like Alan Moore would do something horrible with in one of his comic books. So, uh, should we talk about the movies real quick? Uh, they're not great. Uh, they were they were Michael J. Fox uh, after he stopped acting uh, in live action. They were kind of his like, well, I'll start doing voice acting because physically it's too hard for me to act right now. Um, so Michael J. Fox does a good job at Stuart Little, although you are like, this mouse is 35. (laughs) Like, there's no, they're not even trying to make you think this mouse is a kid. Uh, but the first movie is just Stuart Little, his brother hates him, and Stuart Little's trying to fit it with the family, and the cats are trying to kill him. That's it. It's just about Stuart and the cats, Nathan Lane's the bad guy, and in the end, he comes around. The second book, the second movie is Margolo. And I believe that's the one with the boat. The boat may happen in the first one. I don't, there is a boat race. He gets the car. He has to save her from organized crime. And in the end, Margalo's free, but she chooses to like hang out with the family. And like, and that's it. Like, it's just it's children's movies about a mouse who lives with a family. Gina Davis is in it, and Hugh Laurie. That's it. And it it has nothing to do with E. B. White's Stuart Little, except a few like general. Like concepts like the boat and the car. I've not seen that movie all the way through because uh, at the time uh, I was uh, I was way too old to be watching uh, movies like that. And it also struck me as being I know it's it's from 99, but it seems yeah. to me like that quintessentially 90s. Yeah. Let's make everything radical movie. Yeah, he does we, skateboard. He skateboards. There's going to be some goofy music playing. It is. Uh, CGI is still in its early days. I think this is what, like five years after Jurassic Park or something like that. And yeah, so there's a big deal about CGI and stuff. So I did not watch that, but I I, I do know that there was um, what was it? there was a, there was a famous painting that was rediscovered because of that film. Because yeah, uh, 
Oh God, I was just reading about this. Um, it, there was a painting in the house that was considered a lost painting and it had been sold to like Warner brothers or whoever. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, Robert Baron Bereni oh, sleeping lady with black vase was a considered a lost painting. And then, uh, 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 art historian was watching Stuart little with his daughter and was like, Hey, that's that painting. Nobody knows where it is. <laughs> and it ended up getting sold at auction for 229,500 euro in wow. 2014. But what what a thing. Now, there is a Stuart Little movie starring Johnny Carson. You just showed this to me. I I was unaware of this. Isn't that fascinating? It is. Well, first of all, it's amazing because it it's obviously was made to be um distributed to uh schools mm-hmm. uh, back in the day the days of Super 8, you know, yeah. the, the, because the transfer that is on the Internet Archive warbles like crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, the way that uh, that an old Super 8 uh, projector that can't keep a steady uh, rotation sounds and, 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 and listening to that, you know, was 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 all the nostalgia I could handle. Uh, I had to go lie down for a it's bit. It's a. It's a. It's the entire story. Uh, all the words are from the book. It's cut down. It's writ- read by Johnny Carson. But it's a live action and still image retelling with a little model mouse as Stuart. But especially in the second half, because it's it's two halves, two thirty minute halves. It's a full cast. Like the scenes where he's teaching uh, as a substitute teacher are. I mean, there's kids in that classroom acting. To this little model mouse, you see the car riding down the road. He's on the river. It's a charming, and and the quality of the film gets better as it goes along. Um, but it's a charming little like throwback to uh, like to family and inter- like children's entertainment. Like I I I uh, there's a bunch of Berenstain Bears books that were produced just for classrooms, and you're like, and they're considered almost lost media now because who can watch these things? Uh, but they had full casts and music and sound effects and production value. And it was one of this, there was this era where you made entertainment to be shown to children in school that was sort of based on books, but it was just this given that you had to have movies to show kids and you sold them to schools and they made this like hour long Stuart Little adaptation. Well, you remember when we were, Doing that click cast, um, what was the episode about the the the, the twins? Um, Did you Google Beverly Cleary twins? Mitch and Amy. Mitch and Amy. If you recall, they, there was a big discussion in there about audiovisual yes. stuff and, yeah. and how that was like a new thing that was happening in schools, and that that definitely was something that happened in schools. In the 1960s, there was proliferation of small movie cameras uh-huh. and of, of of film strips, and and as you say, there was this time where people made uh, movies and film strips only for students to watch, and it is sad to think of those things as being gone because um, most of them were terrible, but mm-hmm. they are a part of. Uh, they're a part of, of a lot of people's childhood. I am sure there must be someone somewhere on the web that is keeping film strips alive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There is. A, there are projects of people trying to digitize them and uh, 
and uh, and preserve them. The, the film strips themselves, like the, 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 the frame by frame film strips are difficult because that's 35 millimeter film and you got to have something that can read 35 millimeter film. Uh, but the, yeah, the 60 millimeter, the eight millimeters, uh, there's, there's, there's people working to do that. I mean, the internet archive has this on it just because someone threw it up there. <laughs> uh, and I, and if anyone listening, I suggest go to internet archive and find the Stuart little, uh, two part. It's very, it's delightful. And it's a young Johnny Carson. So, you know, that in itself. Well, it feels just like old times. We've gone completely off the book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Any final thoughts about about Stuart before we wave goodbye as he heads north? None that I can think of. Like like Stuart Little, this this conversation has to be a little open ended uh, <laughs> when it finishes. So I think we found a good spot. <laughs> Thanks again to my co-host Phil Gonzalez. His podcast is Deep in Bear Country. Sophomore Lit is brought to you by The Incomparable Network. Find more funny, smart podcasts at theincomparable.com. You can write the show at sophomore.literature at gmail.com, or you can join the discussion either on the Facebook page or the Incomparable membership Slack. Well, uh, I, I, if we've encouraged anyone to read Stuart Little... But uh, I do encourage you to read Stuart yeah, Little. So do if I. only because it will take you only an hour and a half yep. to read. And uh, it is it is a crazy book. It is. <laughs> <laughs>